you'll open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5, Daniel chapter 5. I want to read verses 1 through 17, Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. I'm actually going to start with verse 37 of the previous chapter. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack And his knees began knocking together. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in. But they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This this was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father, the king, brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. 
Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me. But they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck and you will have authority as the third ruler. In the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. This morning, I hope you will recognize in a broad sense in the whole of the worship service. We have seen in Job 38 God's stern but patient reply to his son, Job, his child. Job's searching and questioning and struggling with frowning providence and all the difficulties of it led him to much difficult language, much struggling in heart and mind, and much questioning of the things of God. And yet God answered him sternly, but he answered him in great grace to shed light to Job's world. To a certain degree, we've seen that with Nebuchadnezzar. Over a period of time, God dealing with Nebuchadnezzar even very sternly, humbling him, that God would be shown to be the sovereign of all things and that there is none like him. But with Belshazzar, there is sternness without patience. The time of patience is over. We see a man who has defied God, and his soul will be required of him. The entrance of Belshazzar into the scripture at this point is quite an abrupt entrance. We go from Nebuchadnezzar in verse 37 to all of a sudden Belshazzar the king in verse 1. We're noted at this point to recognize that Nebuchadnezzar was dead and now Daniel introduces Belshazzar to us. Now for many academic and more moderate To liberal scholars of the last several hundred years, Belshazzar has been a figure of great scrutiny and concern. It's not until the last half of the 19th century or the 1800s, according to one writer, that the name Belshazzar was unattested except for the book of Daniel. For many years, most of what we knew of Belshazzar only really came from the book of Daniel. And so for modern scholars, it's been somewhat of a problem. The other problem is, is that many Babylonian inscriptions that we have had and known of have only named Nabonidus as the last king of Babylon when it fell. This Nabonidus is someone who has been written in time But Belshazzar was not 
as well recorded. And so a debate ensued as to who Belshazzar was or did he even exist. There's some scholars that have noted he's just a figment of imagination and he was made up in the book of Daniel to be used of in some kind of uh, religious story. Well, firstly, in our historical introduction to Belshazzar, I want you to note that after Nebuchadnezzar, a lot of transition occurred in Babylon. Note that after Nebuchadnezzar, a lot of transition occurred in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 B.C. And in less than five years, all was lost. According to one theologian, evil Merodach 560 to 561, who was Nebuchadnezzar's son, he followed his father on the throne. And then he was apparently assassinated by his brother-in-law, a guy by the name of Neraglissar. I don't know how to pronounce that exactly. I'm sure in Aramaic it sounds a lot different. And if I was Mesopotamian, I might know. But I'm not. But this Neraglissar, who reigned about four years, he was succeeded by his son, Labashi Marduk. This man, this Labashi Marduk, was killed in less than a month. And Nabonidus became king by way of conspiracy. His reign was through the agreement among of all the conspirators. And Nabonidus comes to the throne of Babylon. Well, secondly, in this historical introduction to Belshazzar, I want you to note that historic records have shown that Nabonidus had a son named Belshazzar. He had a son named Belshazzar. According to one Aramaic historian, he says, 37 archival texts dated from the 1st to the 14th year of Nabonidus now attest to Belshazzar's historicity. Another writer stated, quote, Rawlinson from the Assyrian inscriptions has explained the seeming discrepancy between Daniel and the heathen historians of Babylon. Belshazzar was joint king with his father, called Minus in the inscriptions, but he was subordinate to his father. So why didn't Daniel mention Nabonidus? Well, one reason I'm thankful he didn't because it's hard to say. I have to really think about saying it correctly and phonetically saying it as an English speaker. So I'm thankful Daniel left that out. But that's not really the real reason. There's two considerations. First, consider the providential circumstances. This king, Nabonidus, apparently was quite religious. He was profoundly enmeshed with a Babylonian moon god named Sin or Sheen. We call him Sin. That's a pretty apt name for a moon god. This moon god would have been in direct competition with the most prominent god of ancient Mesopotamian Babylon, which was Marduk. Now, note that Nebuchadnezzar's son was named 
Merodach, and that the brother-in-law's son who assassinated him, his name was Labashi Marduk. Often the Babylonian king would take on the role of this God idea among the Babylonian people. And this God that they worshipped was named Marduk. And Nabonidus, although he didn't necessarily have a problem with Marduk, he just got really taken over by this moon god and got really interested in serving and worshiping the moon god. Well, those conspirators who put Nabonidus on the throne, they didn't take too well to this religious fervor of Nabonidus. Quote, he seemed intent on prying Marduk loose from his supremacy in Babylon. This may have led to a relocation program for Nabonidus. He spent the next 10 years in Tama, 500 miles from Babylon. Another writer or scholar agrees. He says that Nabonidus resided in Tama, about 500 miles south of Babylon, for most of his 17-year reign, apparently for religious reasons. During these long absences, quote, it was Belshazzar, the crown prince, who ruled the empire. So we see these historic providential occurrences of why Nabonidus is not in the text, but Belshazzar is, because in the very city, the very capital of Babylon, where all of this is taking place, Nabonidus has been relocated for religious reasons and his son is the crown prince and ruling at the time and his name is Belshazzar. The second reason concerns providential biblical circumstances. One writer notes, although the author of Daniel was aware of Nabonidus, as evidenced by the phrase, the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Now, I I kind of emphasized that when I read that in verse 7, the end of verse 7, the promise is, is if all you guys can interpret this dream, I'll make you the third ruler in the kingdom. That's also said to Daniel as well. And then at the end of chapter 5, Daniel is made that by Belshazzar third ruler in the kingdom. Nabonidus, Belshazzar, and Belshazzar can only promise to make them the third ruler in the kingdom. So the text itself gives us some implicit allusion to this understanding of Belshazzar is acting as king as he's the crown prince even though Nabonidus holds the overall title. But the reason Daniel did not mention him by name, according to one writer, is because he played no part in the events described. It was Belshazzar, the crown prince, who ruled the empire. The Bible doesn't have a history problem. Now, even even if... Babylonian inscriptions weren't uh, uncovered and unveiled and more light shed on some of this. 
we could still understand and see that for all the years that people didn't know or people didn't question or even when they did question, the answer was still correct. And the Bible still knew God knows all these things. And he had Daniel put these things down in accordance with a particular purpose. Daniel's purpose is a covenantal purpose. He's trying to explain something to Israel and the people of God. And Belshazzar is the one who ultimately comes under the very judgment of God. Well, we've heard the historical and biblical background. Now let's consider the first part of chapter 5 and the text itself. This morning I just have two main points, mainly to focus to get us through verse 17. Number one, Belshazzar reveled in loose living while Darius marched on the city. Belshazzar reveled in loose living while Darius marched on the city. And number two, Belshazzar fawned in fear when the writing hand appeared. Belshazzar fawned in fear when the writing hand appeared. Verse 1, Belshazzar is now in our understanding on the scene. There's a lot that's unfolded. And what we're actually seeing play out is not a long period of his life. It's actually only one day and night. We're given a glimpse of one day and night of the life of Belshazzar and the death of Belshazzar. And it's interesting how this chapter opens up. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. It was just really a big party. They were living it up one last night. And we get to the end of the chapter. He dies. The throne is taken over. We see the entrance of the Medes and the Persians. And at this point, what we're noting is it's not as though they had helicopters and airplanes. This mounting end to the reign of Babylon was already arriving and sitting at the door all while Belshazzar is reveling in loose living. We would note that the party started with thousands enjoying great feasting and wine. There was salacious revelry and evil, and evil cruelty. And that was really nothing new to Belshazzar. If for one moment we might feel some type of sorrow for Belshazzar as, wow, he's only the crown prince and he's left to all of this. Well, we need to think about some things that God's not calling a man to repentance as though he had done nothing. As though God were being unfair and this man were somehow innocent. One writer says, the heathen Xenophon's description of Belshazzar, that's a historic uh, writer, and he described Belshazzar in accordance with Daniel's description. He calls him impious and illustrates his cruelty 
by mentioning that he killed one of his own nobles merely because in hunting the nobles struck down the game before Belshazzar did. At one point, Belshazzar killed another one of his courtiers because when the courtier entered the room, one of Belshazzar's concubines mentioned that the courtier was handsome. So he had the courtier killed. We're not speaking of an innocent man here. He's being called to repentance and he's meeting his judgment because this was a man who lived in salacious revelry and in evil cruelty. We need to note in the text that the revelry rose from partying to sinful idolatry. Notice the sense of which this partying and drinking and all the stuff going on together at all of this time, all while the city's about to fall. In the midst of that, Nebuchadnezzar, or excuse me, Belshazzar does something different than Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar calls for all of the temple vessels of the Israelites to be brought in so they can now use it in their partying. He reveled with temple vessels meant for the worship of God. If you go back and you read the introduction of those temple vessels, these were very, very particular vessels that were brought into the context of the covenant people of God to reveal to them God's covenant work of the sacrificial system that would be to come. But not only did he use them, he used them also while he worshipped idols. They drank the wine, verse 4, and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. I mean, you already have God's people under your, your hands, so to speak. Because you're the acting king of Babylon. Now you're going to take the, the temple vessels of those people and almost shake your hand in the fist of the God who had those vessels made for his purpose. And then on top of that, once you use those temple vessels, you're now going to worship the idols of gold and wood and stone. It's the ultimate treachery to the one living God. But not only is this nothing new and it's a continuance of his activity, we have to see that he's living it up to the last and that his death came and went in the same night. When we get to the end of this chapter, and we won't be completely there this week, we need to note that there's a progress of movement in the chapter. And we're seeing a man brought to account. Number two, 
Belshazzar fawned in fear when the writing hand appeared. One writer says concerning the historicity of this feast, both the Greek historians Herodotus and Xenophon testified that a banquet was in progress on the night Babylon fell. They're partying, living it up. It's the last night of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, or excuse me, Nabonidus is off uh, in his relocation program somewhere, and we find out in, in later history works that he got to, to be shipped off to another place and live and be fine for a while. But his son, who was left to rule and reign in his absence, is the one who's supposed to be taking care of the kingdom. But while the city's being marched on, he decides, let's just live it up. And then this hand appears on the wall, writing a message. When that hand appears and writes its message, fear strikes Belshazzar to the core. you to note one other kind of piece of history here. There's been a lot of excavation of these Babylonian sites and interestingly enough in the throne room has been revealed this plaster wall and it's three sides they would have noted very clearly. Here's Daniel's information to us telling us This is where and when this happened and how. And there's still evidence of that today. But the thing we can't really replay or can't really see is the biblical description of Belshazzar in the moment. I thought it was interesting. In verse 6, Then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. Well, during the party, the hand and writing frightened the king. He was so frightened, he basically, according to one writer, lost all strength. If your knees, I don't know if you've had that kind of fear before, um, maybe you've been in a, in a near car wreck or something has happened to where you just realized, I, I just almost bit it. It was done. And, and you're, just, you're just shaking you, you, and you, uncontrollably. We have to picture the hand, the hand writing, And the message, now think about it, it's a message that he could not interpret. It's as one writer says, it was a paralyzing terror. But there's no change. 
He's so frightened, he's basically lost all strength, but he's so frightened, he calls for the same old conjurers. He returns to the only faith he knows, the only religion he knows, that which he trusts in. The conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners. Same false religion and faith with the same faulty results. He's scared to death. He doesn't know what to do. But what does he do? He calls out to the same people who've not been able to help his father, or excuse me, his great-grandfather or so forth, early before him, the kings before him. They didn't help him. They didn't help Nebuchadnezzar. It's often like us in our humanity. We go back to the same trough over and over and over again trying to have something different happen. And the trough of humanity is nothing but pig slaw. Everybody's trying to solve the world's problems. How do they solve it? Secularism. We as humans are going to fix it. It's the same trough. Time and time and time and time again. Belshazzar is no different. Same false religion and faith with the same faulty results. They couldn't tell him the message. They couldn't tell him. He's so frightened, he basically lost all strength. He's so frightened, he calls for the same old conjurers. He's so frightened, he listens to the queen. Now, I'm not sure of their relationship. I don't know exactly what it was, but she enters, and it's pretty obvious when she enters, she's gotten some idea of the ruckus that's going on. We don't have her name. We don't know much about her. We know very little of their relationship. I don't know. Maybe she was his Jezebel. Oh, calm down, little baby. I'll fix this. Or as one writer said, we may not know much about her, but she was certainly like Nabal's unnamed servant in 1 Samuel 25. That servant and this queen, in my estimation, came with the right words at the right time. We're not sure of their relationship, but we know she came with the right words at the right time. We're not sure of her importance in secular history, but she was pivotal in biblical covenantal history. You know, secular history probably writes very little about this queen. There's very little known about her in our modern secular histories. But she pointed Belshazzar to the only person who could completely understand the message and interpret its meaning. When the queen arrives, she says, Don't you remember Daniel?
It's not as though he was completely unknown to Belshazzar. He couldn't have been over a period of time. He had been in the upper echelons of the government of Babylon. It once again shows the king's pride and hubris. Who would have to want to rely on some exiled Jew? We already took them over, didn't we? We're about to be taken over. We already took them over. I'm going to go to him? But eventually he's left with no other recourse but to heed the words of the queen and call Daniel in. One writer notes in verse 13, it says, Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who was one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? This writer noted that it's quite possible there's a little put down here. Are you one of those exiles? What use do I have of you? Now I have heard of you about you, verse 14. I've heard about you. The human mind can forget things very quickly. But normally when you have great things brought before you, those things are passed down generation to generation. His pride and hubris had gotten the best of him. And tonight it would be the last. It would be the last. Well, I want to leave you with four observations this morning. Number one, historians inform people of historical matters. God decreed history. That's all that matters. Historians inform people of historical matters. God decreed history. That's all that matters. You and I need to remember that God made and formed the kingdoms of this earth for his purpose. Whether God left us the name Nabonidus or he was found in secular history, ultimately God had decreed all that took place. Nabonidus was allowed to come to the throne by God's decree so that ultimately his son Belshazzar would be crowned prince. And the very covenant understanding of God's people being brought through trial, God's people being brought through suffering, God's people being dealt with time and time again through God's grace, even when evil was in charge, God ordered it all. And God keeps his people. Belshazzar may have thought very little of Daniel. But Daniel is the one who had lived through all those kings. God had his purpose for Daniel. And he brought him forth. Daniel was not assassinated. 
Daniel was not relocated somewhere else that nobody would ever hear from him again. God decreed history. That's all that matters, and we need to remember his sovereignty. Every single day that we live, we can't say it enough. Number two, many people seek festivities to dull the mind to certain calamities. Many people seek festivities to dull the mind to certain calamities. They partied all night long. And especially Belshazzar, and I'm sure the people that were gathered, the thousands that were gathered, they knew what was headed their way. They didn't go to fight and stand up for their kingdom. They didn't even go to hold up their hands in truce. They completely gave way to dull their minds with entertainment so they wouldn't have to think about what was coming. It's no different than the present world we live in. I just want to give you an example, and this has a political connotation to it. I don't necessarily mean for it to have that, but there's no way to get away from it. Sports in America are a billions of billions of billions of dollar industry. Concerts. are hundreds of millions of dollars industry. And yet we live in a country that thinks very little of seriously educating children. Do you think you could get the brightest and the best educators if you paid them more than $35,000 a year? Maybe you could get the best and the brightest educators if you would put the same kind of money you did toward education that you do toward LeBron James. Our priorities are all wrong. We're entertaining ourselves to death, as Neil Postman wrote. People don't think anymore. They just entertain themselves to death. They they have the dullness of the mind to just let it kind of go. I just say to you young parents, you need to take your child's education seriously. And don't monkey around with your child's education. And you better be real careful how you do with that. If you're going to put your child in one of these government schools, you better spend a lot of time trying to help your child deal with what they're going to hear and learn. You better be taking time at home to do it. There are lots of good teachers in our school systems whose hands are tied. But they're tied because nobody really cares about good education. They care about, I just want what I want when I want it. 
and we're dulling our minds. We're losing our society because all we can think about is entertainment. And I dare say to you that the modern church is no different. The modern church is entertaining itself to death. Much like Nero fiddled while Rome burned, Belshazzar fiddled around while Cyrus was preparing to burn down the town. Number three, the arrival of a word from God is frightening even before it's read. The arrival of a word from God is frightening even before it's read. We need to take our Bible seriously, and I don't, I don't mean just the encasing of it in this volume. If you're reading it on a tablet, a digital tablet, or wherever you're reading your Bible, you're reading the very Word of God. And it ought to have a certain level of gravitas to it. And quite frankly, if we're never struck with fear by reading the word of God in a way that it causes us serious pause, I would say to you that we've already dulled our mind way too far. Because all we're thinking about is, what can I do next? What fun can I have next? What joy can be there for me? Me, 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 me. Belshazzar was thinking about himself saying, me, 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 me. The arrival of a word from God is frightening even before it's read. Matthew Henry said, he affronts God and God affrights him. In one sense, another pastor wrote, our first acquaintance with God's word is often disconsoling. When I read that, I thought back to, to Pilgrim. Here he is, Christian, on his way. And, and what first happens when, when he reads the book? It's not immediate joy and comfort. And, and he's not reading that in Pilgrim's Progress. It's not as though the Word of God just gave him this instant joy and dancing through the tulips. No. He's brought to the realization of his sin. And it's disconsoling. Number four, Dale Ralph Davis really put this together or helped me put this together in my mind, but it started with this one phrase of his or sentence. Number four, the hope of every person is a cast-off Jew. The hope of every person is a cast-off Jew. Never read Dale Ralph Davis. You can read him. He's quite interesting. But that really struck me. Belshazzar knew Daniel. Chapter 8, verse 1 tells us that he knew of him. Belshazzar thought Daniel was beneath him. Belshazzar thought Daniel's God was of no consequence. 
Belshazzar needed Daniel and was soon confronted by his God. Belshazzar was in need of this cast-off, exiled Jew named Daniel. And all of Daniel's words and prophecy were pointing ahead. And everyone, every person, needs their hope in this one cast-off Jew. His name's the Lord Jesus. His own people rejected him. They casted him off. The Gentiles, the Romans, they casted him off. What if a man gains the whole world but loses his soul? The only hope for any of us in our souls is that one cast-off Jew the very Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. When you come to the table this morning, remember what you're celebrating. Remember the hope that has been brought to your very soul because the debt and penalty and the guilt of your sin has been paid through Christ's perfect life, his broken body, and his shed blood. And without him, you and I would be like Belshazzar. Our soul would be required of us one day or one night. And without the hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, repentant faith believing in him alone, we would have no right standing before a holy God when he comes to judge. If you're here and you're a believer, rejoice. Give thanks. Be thoughtful of your need for Christ. If you're not a believer, you need to start thinking about your need for Christ. Because you and I never know the day, the time, or the hour. The end of our lives and our death, it can come at 12 or 18 years of age or 26, or 36, or 46, or 56. Maybe it does come at 76 or 86, but it's still going to come. And there's only one who's overcome the sting of death, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've been merciful to give us this time to worship and glory in you. We're singing the truths of your word and praying the truths of your word, reading your word and hearing it preached. We ask that your spirit would work in our souls. Even now as we come to the time of the table, maybe, may we be thoughtful by the very work of your spirit about our need for forgiveness of sin. We praise you through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
start together our song substitute.